2: Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries, predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I'd been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me but in all those years what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit our ability no matter where we're from to overcome and make it through to the other side so in my new series the kemp cast i'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives right now we're living in unprecedented times And we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the CampCast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is Ross Edgley, famous for his incredible athletic adventures. He made the headlines in 2018 for becoming the first person to swim around mainland Britain. Now, I like to think I keep myself fit, but after chatting with Ross about his challenges, I think it's safe to say he could probably give Superman a run for his money. I hope you enjoy the show. Ross, how
3: are you? I'm well. I'm excited to chat to you. I mean, I know we spoke off air just now, but I'm trying not to fanboy a little bit. I'm, I'm excited. No, man. Well, it's,
2: it's, it's a mutual love going on here, yeah? Uh, I've got... I can't tell you. I mean, oh, all okay, right, let's do it. Right, run a marathon pulling a 1.4-ton car, climbed a rope 8,848 metres. That's the height of Everest. Uh, ran 1,000 miles barefoot in a month, carrying a 50-kilogram pack. Completed an Olympic distance triathlon carrying mate a hundred pound tree, <laughs> ran 31 marathons in 31 days on the treadmill in his kitchen, <laughs> swam over a hundred kilometers across the Caribbean Sea, pulling a hundred-pound tree, swam non-stop for 48 hours, and you're the only person and probably will be the only person to swim around the British Isles. Why? Yeah, <laughs> tell me Did- why.
3: Do you know what? I want to just get straight into this because it's, it's a similar question that I want to throw back to you. But my reasons have changed quite a bit as to the reason why. Like at the start, you know, I talked about Captain Webb. That story was just like, it was so British, like the eccentric British explorer. So for people who don't know, Captain Webb
2: was the first person to swim across the channel. And at the time, in Victorian times, there was actually, and this is not, this is impromptu. We just, we just hit on someone that, there's a brilliant book about his life story because he ended up, um, becoming a bit of a circus um, attraction. Yeah. And he died at Niagara Falls, right? He did. Yeah. Um, so, but he was actually the first person to swim across the channel. And at the time, the money offered for swimming the channel was the same as someone getting to the moon. And he actually mm. managed to do it. But he, he didn't actually mm. even swim the shortest route, did he? He actually swam kind of diagonally. <laughs> he ended up near Cherbourg. So he swam an extra like 10 miles. And he did it breaststroke. Oh yeah. And, and he smoked five cigars across, ate two chickens, drank a bottle of brandy and about twelve pints of beer. <laughs>
3: that was that, it. Um in a woolen wetsuit as well, you know, kind of that there's you know, and then because I love as well at the time Frank Crawl was ungentlemanly like. So that's why he did it breaststroke, because you know, that was cons- kind of considered unsightly. You don't do that. That's bad form. So when I said I want to swim around Great Britain, everyone was there saying, like, I can't be done. You know, it's impossible. The tides are too strong. Like, you know, Coriovec and Giant Whirlpool, Penarth, And it just felt like Captain Webb. So I was like, yeah, you know, okay. Like, yeah, hold my beer. Off I go. But then equally, since sort of reverse engineering and deconstructing this and, and really looking at the reasons why, asking questions about myself, I've kind of got a little bit philosophical about it now, looking at Aristotle, who talks about this idea of eudaimonia. So uh, Aristotle and the ancient Greeks believed that happiness was a bad word. It kind of, it, it didn't quite fulfil and explain what you're trying to do. Eudaimonia, however, said that um, you, you're going to be happy, but it's going to suffer. You're going to have to labour for it. You're going to have to struggle for it. So it's just this idea that happiness without fulfilment is failure. So, although I was swimming 12 hours a day, you know, just getting stung by jellyfish and everything, it was the struggle made the success so much sweeter. And I think looking back now, I realize that's been a motivating factor, this innate desire all humans have within us. But I think, equally, as a huge fan of Extreme World, looking at yourself, successful actor, you had everything. It's like, why would you want Wouldn't to. Wouldn't necessarily,
2: go? I had everything. I had a few things. A lot of things wrong with me as
3: well, I have to say. But yeah, go on, carry oh, on, Ross. But equally, when people say to me, why would you swim around Great Britain, like 157 days, you know, losing parts of your tongue, you know, just bodies just rotting at sea. And, and the only explanation is, is eudaimonia. Aristotle was trying to make sense of it himself. And, and I suppose I wanted to ask you, like, what is the motive to keep going? After Papua New Guinea, most people would just go like, you know, I'm out. Like, that's, that's, that's it. But like episode after episode, prisons, you know, drug lords,
2: so what, what's the motive? But because, because, because there is a fulfillment in it and I think that's absolutely right. You know, there is a purpose to it, which is finding out more about the world and what makes it tick and the people inside it. And I, and I still hold to that now, even though I am maybe not traveling as far because I'm not doing Extreme World, sadly, which I love doing. I think you're absolutely, this eudaimonia. the point is that, look, you know as well as I do, I don't know, do you actually drink? Do you ever have a pint of pain? Uh, uh,
3: probably once a year if it's a friend's birthday. There's probably
2: once a year. I'm probably <laughs> definitely once a week at least. But, but a pint earned tastes better than a pint not earned. You know, and, and I think that is, I suppose, in essence, what, what you're aiming at, isn't it? It's, it's, it, it? it's not necessarily about enjoying the pain. It's about experience the pain to get the gain. If it's all about pain to
3: get the gain, aren't you at risk of damaging yourself? You you know, that's such a good point, because I think one thing I discovered is when swimming around Great Britain, you took swimming, as we understand it, in the realms of conventional sport, you know, going up and down a nice pool, and you just removed it. So it it was no longer a sport in terms of swimming. It was actually more akin to sailing. When you start going across the Moray Firth, Bristol Channel, it it becomes a survival exercise. You're not swimming anymore. It's survival. So I like what you said there, because in terms of training – Yes, absolutely. You need to, you know, that kind of risk and reward, making sure that you're in that adaptation phase and never basically fully exerting yourself. So you're just kind of written off, your central nervous system's waving the white flag. So, yeah, absolutely. But w- all of a sudden, when you start doing something like the GB swim, which I would compare essentially, it's almost like looking at, um, uh, you know, climbing Everest, Mallory, Hillary, Tenzig, you know, all of the greats compared to Kip running the sub two hour marathon. One was done in strictly controlled conditions. And the other one, anything could have gone wrong and you could have been swept off the face of, of Everest.
2: And, and, and likewise, let's be really clear about, um, about the
3: swim. It was potentially lethal, right? Yeah, I, at, at certain points, absolutely. Tell me about the whirlpool. Oh, yeah, so Coriavec and Giant Whirlpool in Scotland. And, and approaching that, I mean, sailors, local sailors were just sort of saying, it was so sombering. They just said, like, ships have gone down. You know, people have lost their lives. Like This is, this is no joke. So, so can you explain to us what it is, Ross?
2: I know Giant Walpole, but
3: what, why, what's the reason for it? Is it currents meeting each other? What is it? So even now, it's kind of like in folklore. There's mysteries around why it exists. It gets, like Ross, it gets really weird. Like the local fishermen were there going, watch out for the Hag Goddess. Oh, really? Sea witch. Oh yeah, I was like, what? And at the time I was like, yeah, nice one. But then I'm telling you, swimming in the Hebrides at night and you start hearing things, you're like, is that the hand goddess? Yeah, 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 or is that the
2: kraken coming to get me? I mean, to, on, that, on that subject again, just quickly, you know, you're in the out in the water for 12 hours, sometimes, you know, as you say, wiping ice off your wetsuit
3: before you got in. What is your mind, where do you place your head? Yeah. One thing that I found is every single tide, because people say, what did you think about? But you had to change it every single tide, day, month. You had to just completely flip it. Sometimes swimming with dolphins, whales, it's amazing. You don't have to flip anything. It's a joy to be there. But then other times, one thing I found is this idea. So Tim Noakes proposed this idea of the central governor theory um, or the psychobiological model of fatigue. He basically said that fatigue is an emotionally driven state that we use to pull the physiological handbrake for self preservation basically put simply if me and you went and ran a marathon right now 18 miles in we will be there going like i <laughs> know no, eight miles in no i'm all right i'm i'm, I'm, I'm good for eight <laughs> okay that's good because it's all relative let's stick with eight so eight eight miles in you know you turn to me and i turn to you and i'm like oh god my legs are on fire my lungs are burning and you'll be like yeah yeah me too so six miles in, what happens is your brain starts going, don't go to complete exhaustion, muscle glycogen levels, blood sugar levels depleted, all of these things. It starts to lift that physiological handbrake. You slow down or you stop because it's self-preservation. Your brain's telling your body, don't go to complete exhaustion. It's dangerous. But what happens is all of a sudden, seven miles in, you see your family and friends and there's an ice-cold beer at the end. And you turn to me and you'll be like, Ross, I'm getting that beer. You know, and all of a sudden, you step and you start sprinting. So it's this idea we see it time and again, even with the Navy SEALs, and they use the 40% rule, which is the same thing, that when you're absolutely done, you're actually only at 40%. Is that true? Are you really only
2: at 40% when you're absolutely done? If, you, if you're cramped up, you know, it, I've seen people drop. I mean, I've seen people, you know, on route marches when we were out in Afghanistan or on patrols, which went for more than 13, 14 hours. If you're in 44 degree heat, and you're carrying body armor and lead and six liters of water and food for five days, um, plus all the other gubbins, you don't take
3: in the right amount of water, you go man down, you go sick. It's a good point. And and I love that you've just described the military because in my experience with friends of mine in the military, they have an ability to push beyond that central governor theory, that 40% rule. I'm, I'm not sure about the percentage and I agree with you on that. However, when you start pushing beyond that, it's almost like you have to outsource common sense so that's one thing that I'll do with um, a lot of the sports scientists at Gymshark, for instance. When I'm swimming, we'll have biofeedback. They'll be looking at my heart rate, my body temperature. I can swallow these thermic pills. So they basically tell my core temperature. Say that again. So, so I can basically swallow pills like that. And then they, they're on the boat. So as I'm swimming, they could turn to me and say, Ross, if I'm doing ice swimming, for instance, water's like four degrees in Norway. And I'm mumbling my words. I can't speak. And they'll be like, but actually, he's okay. We're looking... On the monitor, his body temperature is okay.
2: So the pills that you swallow are sending information
3: back. Is that right? It's exactly that, yeah. So it's, you remove all of the subjective anecdotal, like, how are you doing, Ross? How many fingers am I holding up? Can you speak to me? Because I'll be there, like, dribbling. Like, and, you know, but they'll go, oh, no, look. Objectively, his core temperature is okay. Because when you get into cold water as well, your extremities, blood's pulled from your extremities first. That's trying to keep you alive, isn't it? That's trying to keep your inner organs with blood around them. So your body goes, you don't need these, but you do need these bit. Otherwise you die. It's exactly it. It's it's the mammalian reflex. We share it with otters, dolphins, seals, you know, and so all of that blood goes around your organs, your vital organs to retain heat and also the brain to keep your vital organs because you're right. It's going, don't need these. But objectively, like I said, the sports scientists at Gymshot now, they can look and say, "Um, but you're okay. Or sometimes I can say, I feel fine. And they'll go, no, Ross, like you're really in trouble. And they'll pull me out because I've been on the verge of hypothermia. You know, sometimes you're not your own best expert. You're not thinking straight. You can't rely on your own brain. And central governor theory, psychobiological model of fatigue, you know that your brain's going to trick you. You know, so to have that feedback is invaluable. What
2: goes through your mind? 12 hours. As you say, you know, you're hearing the sea witch. There you are,
3: (laughs) smashing through the water. Where do you place your head? It, it can go to some weird places. And I think as well, it, it's, you, you almost have to have something in your head, like a story or a thought process, something that, that is potent, that's going to actually, so sometimes it's like almost um, changing the channel on the TV. You know, I might start thinking about uh, family, friends, and that'll work. And I'll be like, oh, know, yeah, I can't wait till this is all over. And I can, you know, go on holiday with the girlfriend. And that's a potent thought that will keep you going. I quite often say that, you know, your reasons to continue need to be bigger than your reasons to stop. But you need loads of reasons, and you need to keep changing them in your head. Because then sometimes, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to probably get in trouble saying this. But like with, with my girlfriend, I'll be thinking, oh, I see my girlfriend, and I'm like not interested. Like you know, <laughs> no, but but a pizza, you know, when I get back on the boat. So you change the channel.
2: <laughs> so that's so, so you're actively changing the motivation for what you're doing in order to get through the next hour or the next hurdle or the next wave, the next sting
3: from a jellyfish, whatever that may be. Yeah, is exactly it. And you almost need to become uh, an expert in running your own brain. So I talk about uh, when I was in Scotland, I talked about, um, you know, Einstein, adversity introduces you to you, you know, and it's this idea that in like, these adverse conditions, you really realise what you're made of. And there's no ego, you can't trick yourself anymore. And what I love about that is you really realise if you're intrinsically motivated or extrinsically. So intrinsic being the process is its own reward so i like swimming i like the sunsets it was just a joy to be there with the dolphins um extrinsic motivation would come from uh, medals uh, trophies money you know things things like that extrinsic outside of your control there's no right or wrong answer which one and it'll be a combination so often but but before you set off on any athletic adventure on extreme world heading into enemy territory really be honest with yourself you don't have to tell anyone but like why are you doing it because because what's going to happen if you don't know yourself you'll be found out when you're there in an arctic storm with a jellyfish hanging off your face and that's that's when you don't want to find out what motivates you no no before so yeah i love what you said there change it change it up sometimes when i set the record for the world's longest stage swim um that was at about 100 days i think it was and i still had longer to go but that was nice. That was extrinsic. And it was nice to know that I'd swum further at sea than any other human. You know, that was nice. But then other times it was like, no, you, you can't keep relying on, uh, you know, the medals or trophies and records because it, they're quite fickle. You know, they can, they can go.
2: But you say you, you change it up depending on where your headspace
3: is at the time.
2: Uh, one thing I do, but if, I'm, if one of those days where you just don't feel like it, you know, oh, it's raining, or I've just had a row, or the kids kept us up, whatever it may be. I've always found that if those bad thoughts start coming in, I use, I can either use the smile, which you talk about, um, I know, I use that, let's laugh
3: through this, or the reverse, I, I get angry. And, and what I love about that though, is you're absolutely right to use those two. But one thing I found on the GB was, um, if you, uh, you like grit your teeth and you try to get angry, you know, you know you're going to get an adrenaline dump. You know your your thyroid, your central nervous system, everything's going to be like, you know, you can't keep doing that. It's like using nos on a car. You know, you can use it to get uphill, but for 157 days, you cannot. It's going have to you. burn the engine. Exactly, exactly. So what I love about what you said there is just knowing when to use it, and that goes for everything. If you're going to use um, caffeine as well, you know, positively affects neurotransmitters, chemical signals in the brain. You can't do the whole thing wired on caffeine. You know, cause that's gonna just tire out central nervous system, adrenal gland. It would just be like, no way.
2: I was talking to Daryl, my my mate, who trains me, and he was saying, you know, the thing about caffeine, you can use it in the morning to help kickstart an exercise regime, but you don't wanna be taking it after 12 o'clock. We both say like, hello, I got some coffee here anyway. But, um, <laughs> um, but also, if you're gonna go and sit then at a
3: desk, it is gonna mess with your adrenal system, right? Oh, massively. And also as well, like even your, um, your body's, you know, 24-hour biological clock as well, your circadian rhythm, you know, you start looking at that and, you know, how melatonin spikes and, you know, your hormones and you start like nailing coffee. It's exactly that. So for me, it was nursing the body around Great Britain in that when I was swimming at night, my body and my brain was going, it's night melatonin produced. You should be in bed, Ross. And I was going, look, I know I should be in bed, but we need to get around this headland up at Cape Roth. You know, so it's on there, I'm swimming, swimming, swimming. But if I'd have ended up nailing too much caffeine, I would have then been in bed, just wide awake. <laughs> so it's playing the l- long game. But Ross, the reason that you swam at night was because of tides, correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so just in theory, basically the tide changes every six hours. So you swim when it's with you and then you get on and you rest on the boat in that exact position you stopped for six hours and then you move when it's with you. So, yeah, it didn't matter if the tide changed at two in the morning or two in the afternoon, you know, you just get in, which just plays havoc with
2: those melatonin levels and what, you know. So, just, let's talk about sleep. How important do you think sleep
3: is? Uh, so much. And actually, I, I'm glad you asked, just because, I, you know, with, with your friend in the military as well, your trainer, I owe so much to the Royal Marines, just because I was an athlete, you know, that was my background. So, everything I had my pre workout, prehab, rehab, I was well slept, well rested. And then when I did that 48-hour swim uh, at Limpston, the reason I did that with my friends who were all marine PTIs is because they could coach me in sleep deprivation. So I remember I was 36 hours in. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I I ended up bumping into like a lane rope with my hand because I was all over the place. And I swear to this day, I thought it was a person. I thought there was a swimming club in there. And I stopped and I said, oh, God, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm a little bit tired. I won't swim into you again. And then I actually offered the lane rope, thinking it was a person. I said, oh, and if you're hungry, there's, there's some um, uh, muffins and cookies at the end. You know, please help yourself. I'm sorry again. And Benny, my friend, stopped me and was like, Ross, uh, can I stop you there, mate? And I went, yeah, yeah. He goes, are you okay? I went, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, well, you're not. You, you, you just apologized to the lane rope and offered it cookies. <laughs> so it was him knowing that, you know, perceptual distortions, hallucinations, essentially, that your own brain after 36 hours is going to start to... Deja vu. I start deja
2: vu I mean, and that was particularly in Afghan, I would suggest, and and times in Syria. If you stay up, if you go through to a, a day and a night and a day, and then to the night again, yeah, you can have really odd out-of-body experiences. Like, hallucinations, basically. You know, look at the punishment. I mean, you went to Loughborough, right? Which, that was right, yeah. Well, explain to people for those that I used to play against Loughborough at, at rugby and we never won any games we played <laughs> in your place uh, and that was when I was playing for a national three side um but uh yeah we always got beat so it, it's
3: it's it is the the sports university of choice right that's right yeah I think it was voted uh, the world's best sports uni or declared the world's best sports university and yeah, in terms of sports science, you know, the friends of mine who have gone on to be, you know, really quite renowned um, lecturers there and, and professors. I'm so lucky that I can call upon them. But, but everything there is done under such uh, strict and controlled conditions. And then what's fascinating is, is trying to take that outside of conventional sport. One of the best examples outside of me, um, Eddie Hall, uh, you know, world's strongest man. Amazing man. Oh, incredible. And when he deadlifted his half a ton and made history, they took him into Loughborough just to test, like, what is going on with your body? And they found out all sorts that he had, like, dormant genetic Viking DNA that's quite rare, that he produces more muscle mass than, you know, other humans. And it got really deep. And then even how he's actually, you know, strength, your body's ability to generate force, which is you recruiting muscle fibers. Like, his neural system was just, he's just wired different. He's just made different. And that's what's so great about Loughborough. So,
2: and on that, well, I mean, we, we've got to come back to Loughborough again, but, but, you know, you talk about how people are wired differently. Do you think you're wired differently?
3: I, I personally don't. I think a lot of the things, and I talk about this in my new book, that a lot of the strategies that I used and we're discussing now, I think are available to everybody. But yes, absolutely. Some people have a genetic predisposition to be strong, good at endurance. You look at Michael Phelps. Ross, you must have. No one, no one's done what you've done. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it became a mental thing. So I love when your um, podcast with Billy, you know, for instance, and, you know, when you start talking to somebody like that, what I love about Billy is he's just made sense of his own brain just pragmatically being on the front line not theoretical not like studying it he just he knows how to run his brain he didn't go to loughborough that's for sure <laughs> no but he's he's, a, he's like a professional psychologist he just never studied it but but you don't get the sort of experience that and and, and you know that, that he's done so i i think it's sort of the same in that what i would attribute to the great british swim was my my arm stroke became irrelevant when people were like, Do you bilaterally breathe? Do you breathe every stroke? I was like, that's not the limiting factor. The limiting factor is, you know, are you just gonna keep getting in time after time and just refuse to give up, basically? So that I believe everybody has access to. I think if I was speaking to you now and I was six foot eight, looking like Michael Phelps with a wingspan like this, I'd be like, mm. but the reality is as I'm five foot eight you know, small, like I'm a small guy. I know that was it. I was told I was never going to be an elite swimmer. You know, I'm built like a hobbit. So they were just like, Ross, it's not going to work for you. But, but is that in a way, is that one of the things that spurred you on? I, I think it, I think that plays a part. The, the sports scientist in me wants to do it for personal reasons. So what I love is, yeah, because I am like so short, it's nice that if somebody said like, what's... Um, what do you think you might have? It's probably an intangible, you know, it's, it's like, I, I don't know, it's probably in your own head. And that's where we're looking at the next um, evolution in sports science that you could look and say, he's going to be a great runner. He's going to be a great, you know, weightlifter. But sometimes it's just that person who, you know, will just go, you know, but, but equally the motive in the past has always been um, a charity element. This is a great example. Uh, when I pulled the, the car for a marathon at Silverstone Race Circuit, like you do (laughs) (laughs) my friend who's absolutely fine now but he was diagnosed with cancer at the time and um for those people who don't know the teenage cancer trust is amazing um if you were diagnosed with cancer as a teenager you were treated in the children's ward or the elderly ward but you were robbed of your teenage years basically the teenage cancer Trust is incredible and they build these wards these specialist wards and so i wanted to do something to give back to, to to them who helped my friend and like i said he's absolutely fine now um and that was why, you know, 19 hours it took. Um, I remember uh, I've still got like wounds and scars from the car harness, but it was it was just knowing. I'll never forget, it was at Silverstone as well. And um, there was these tourists who came uh, over and they were lovely. They were like, yeah, oh, let's go and watch the guy like make history. And they turned up and going like two miles per hour. And they were like, "Yay!" well it's going, going on a bit <laughs> and they just left so again there was no one there like apart from you know my family and everything to record it so it's knowing your reasons to continue again need to be bigger than your reasons to stop and charity has always been a really big one to do something for a higher purpose again one of the many different things different channels that you can switch into when you're hitting the wall Right, is exactly it yeah you know that they not not people are relying on you but you said you're going to do something you know, be a man of your word. If you say you're going to do something, if you say you're going to pull a marathon, you know, run a marathon with a car on your back, it doesn't matter how long it takes. And I remember I was, you know, 10 hours in, I, I, I turned to my older brother and I was like, I was just absolutely hanging. And I turned, I was like, how are we doing? And we're right? And he was keeping check of the distance and time. And he turned to me and he said, oh yeah, yeah, we're, we're 10 in, we're 10 in. I went 10, 10, 10 miles. Oh, that's not bad. So like 16, you know, yeah. Okay, 26.2 miles, 16.2 miles left. That's not too bad. And he put his head down like that. And I was like, what? And he went, not miles, mate, kilometers. (laughs) So I had had like 30 more kilometers.
2: (laughs) At that moment, what what spurs you on? The charity?
3: Yeah. And that's why I actually turned and they were at Silverstone Race Circuit were amazing. I remember I turned to them and they said, how's he doing? And they were like, awful. He's still out there. And uh, I just turned to them and I just said, how long will, uh, how long have I got the track for? Because they lent me Stowe Circuit. And they said, no one, you know, it's January, you know, we're not even using it. It's yours till Monday. And that I started uh, uh, Friday morning at like one o'clock in the morning. I said, cool. So i got like, you know, 48 hours. They went, yeah. I said, brilliant. I'll be out here as long as it takes. Do not take the car off my back. I'm, you know, so that, that was nice. And, and it's just, it, and that's the other thing, I suppose. It's just like winning ugly, you know, it's not going to be pretty, but the job will get done.
2: Yeah. And again, I go back to the same thing. You, you, you don't think that you're different to other people. I would suggest that you are. You said if you're going if you're going say if you say you were going to do something, then you do it. I think society, what do you think about society?
3: Do you think we're we're a bit soft? I, I, well, that was partly the reason for the swim that I wanted to prove to myself that I think our ancestors, um you know wouldn't be i always say when i go ice swimming you know i was swimming in norway through a a fjord it was like three degrees and everyone was going like oh yo this is and and again actually social media it can be a great tool but also you know kind of your worst enemy and there was some people going oh you know this is incredible look oh you know you're you're so brave you're so strong And i was like no i'm not because our ancestors wouldn't have called this an ice swim they'd have called it a swim so do you think it's they were tougher Two generations ago but they weren't breaking records like they break records today that's a really good point yes i think sports performance and almost adventure and military i think they're two different you're absolutely right and but i also start thinking like in terms of it's probably a different sort of resilience that we have now you know that we have to cope with things that you know perhaps our ancestors wouldn't but i i think that physicality of it that now we're so comfortable if it's, if it's cold in your house, all of a sudden you just put the central heating on, you know, we've got, we, we run in these big shoes with big built up heels, not using, you know, the feet like barefoot running like mother nature intended. Yeah, you know, you, you relate a lot of things to, to mythology, don't you? And, and
2: very wise, wise people. Um, do, do you follow Greek mythology? Do you, you, do you, have you read a lot of it? Or did you just cherry pick the bits that you think are applicable to,
3: to what you're doing um, and, and the training? Cherry-pick's a great word. Yeah, quite often people will tell me stories and they'll say, oh, that's, that's like this. You know, when I was struggling, for instance, on the GB swim, um, people were saying, oh, it's quite similar to Marcus Aurelius. And I was like, please go on. And they were talking about Marcus Aurelius being this Roman emperor who ruled, you know, all of Rome and everything, one of the great stoic philosophers, but was you know, it was widely known that he was so ill, he suffered from all sorts of ailments, uh, survived wars, uh, plagues, you know, when a lot of his other health, you know, perceived to be healthier, you know, brothers, cousins, everything, like that, they they were they were dying, you know, so it's just like, how did that dude continue? So that, I was like, yes, okay, I'll take inspiration from that. That led me on to, and not to t- sound too morbid, but Um, The Stockdale paradox, so uh, Admiral James Stockdale, uh, prisoner of war in Vietnam, survived seven years of of horrific conditions, Um, never, uh, despite being tortured and uh, everything, never gave up any information, any intel or anything like that. And they said, how did you do it? Like, how, how did you survive? And he said, like, basically, you need to know that it will be over. You need hope. It will be over soon. Like, you cannot lose sight of hope. But equally, on the other hand, you have to face up to your current reality. And it's that dual thought process that I was using again on the swim, trying to swim in the Stockdale paradox, knowing that this will end. You know, all of a sudden I will have a shower once again, you know, I will shave, jellyfish won't keep bouncing off my face. It will end and and, and I won't be hurting anymore. But equally, I have to face up to my current reality. But Stockdale spoke about seeing these people come into these, um, these camps And he could literally pinpoint who wouldn't make it. And he said it's the optimists, those who are just going, you know, we'll we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas would come, Christmas would go, they'd be crushed. We'll be out by Easter. You know, and 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 it was that. So to, to answer your question about cherry picking, that was something again, was another tool that I used on the swim. As as this will keep me going. Stockdale paradox. So do you believe you
2: have to have mental strength? and physical strength in equal numbers or is there a an imbalance in those two things
3: yeah i really think we do yeah i and i think we've lost that a little bit again you know this is something that i picked up on with plato you know that plato influenced western philosophers, we know it today but yeah, plato was his nickname it meant broad shoulders he was a great wrestler you know, and, and if you've ever read any of his stuff, he talks about this idea of being a scholar athlete, you know, somebody a, a really sort of thinking athlete, being physically fit. But equally, you have to educate yourself. And I'm going to butcher this quote, but I love it. I can't remember who said it now. I don't think it was Plato, but they said um, in society, they said, you know, one of the problems, this is going back to ancient Greece. And they said that if you have your fighting done by soldiers and your thinking done by politicians, then you have your fighting done by idiots and your thinking done by cowards. And it was this idea that there needs to be a fusion. You need to be this kind of like, you know, I, I sometimes call it like a savage scholar. You know, you need to be able to just kind of throw down, swim through the koryo whirlpools.
2: I agree. And, and,
3: I, and I think that
2: that's something that a lot of people don't, don't really understand about people who end up in SF or, or you know, I met General Cordwell. I spent some time with him. He's a three-star general. Not only was he incredibly fit and a trained killer, but he was also incredibly bright. And he was a great advocate again of,
3: you know, to understand our future, we have to understand our past. Uh, would you go along with that? I love that. It's exactly that, yeah, that, that history repeats itself. And yeah, you, you know, or, or I always say, you know, success leaves clues as well. So just look at, you know, what successful people are doing and, and follow that. Everything from, you know, when I took so much inspiration from Captain Webb, but equally looking at Kipchoge breaking the sub two hour marathon, Roger Bannister running a four minute mile. Like, how did these people go and do what many people perceived to be impossible? You know, Roger Bannister, they said it, you, it can't be done. Leading physicians were saying it's impossible. The human body cannot run under a four-minute mile. You cannot do it. And he was a medical student himself. You know, but something inside of him was just like, no. And he laced up his trainers. When you look at his training regime as well, there was a real mythology, put everything together. Systematically, this is how I'm going to break the four-minute mile. And so, yeah, I, I think that so often people talk about Roger Bannister, Kipchoge, and they're like, oh, my God, they're physical beasts i love what you just said there it's like i don't think their their mental strength and their their running iq gets enough credit as well and that's looking back through history at most successful people they really do fuse the two and and, and, and i think you have to be able to switch i'll come back to it but like you know with with and I love this tape. I know, I, I know you've probably heard this a million times. But in Papua New Guinea, if you were there going, oh, let, let me uh, talk as he's got a gun in your face. Let's talk about it. Um, you know, and, and I love how you never drop your water as well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, mate, what that was about. I have no idea.
2: I should go to this stage like, do no, know what happened. really went down there. But it happened, that's for sure. And, and, I, and you know, everyone goes, oh, you were really brave there, Ross. Or you were really stupid. Maybe a little bit of both. But you've got to bear in mind that, that, that Jonathan, my cameraman, never dropped that camera. And he had a gun in his back. And it was a, an old M1 American carbine. And that would have made a hole the
3: size of a, a dinner plate in him if they pulled the trigger and it had worked. But, but, um, but did, did you know at that time to to be, you were like, right, now's not the time to be a scholar. You need to be a savage. Oh, Is that- I think
2: there are points. If you go down on your knees at that point, there's bad things are going to happen to you. So, right. And they they apparently were raping people before they killed them. So I think... Wow. Out of the two, I think I'd rather be dead first. So let's see what happens. I mean, that wasn't the logic. <laughs> that wasn't the logic. You didn't think about it. Also, what you can't see in that is that there were a number of other guys with spears, really, really dangerous, nasty, rusty-looking, barbed things. And I thought, mm.
3: I think I'd rather have a bullet than a spear. But there you go. That, that went through your head quickly. So you processed all that, going like, okay, rusty spear. but you know, Okay, cool. I'm just going to go down.
2: I think, I think you've also got, if you ever look at it and analyse it, um, Ed Venner, who was the director, is holding a boom pole. Right, That's awesome. <laughs> as I'm, uh, and he's like in shock, and he's like that guy in the pub when there's a fight. and pretends he's not there. I <laughs> know oh, this isn't really happening. No, like that bottle that just passed me, or that fist, that, that bloke getting beaten in the corner against the jukebox. That's not happening. I'm not really here. You can't see me. Uh, yes, wow. Ed. You can be seen. <laughs> in fact, we are the only people that look like this for over a thousand miles. So you definitely can be seen. <laughs>
3: Oh, was it was it almost a form of paralysis for him though did it was, was that conscious did he just think stop or did he just go like oh good i dog. think i think again it's about your human nature isn't it and, and what um, fight or flight yeah yeah. yeah yeah or freeze fight flight yeah. or freeze oh, Freeze, yeah.
2: yeah and the last one you want to do is the last one
3: yeah well but I, I just i love that you just went in to fight
2: though right, I, think, <laughs> I just you know yeah i did that but it's only because you if you do a lot of that stuff you get used to knowing or guessing i would say Um, you look at the way up your, 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 your angles, don't you? And you try to go for the one that you think has got the most successful
1: outcome. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month.
2: just tell me, I, I love this. What does Bruce Lee and Mozart have in common?
3: Are <laughs> oh, you? <legend. laughs> yeah, it was exactly that. With Mozart and Bruce Lee, that one of the, the things that they did best was just picking what they thought was useful. Mo- people don't understand that Mozart was still attending um, you know symphonies, orchestras and learning things from the younger musicians, you know, Bruce Lee, obviously, before he arrived boxing existed over here, wrestling was over here, and, and you know, he basically was the, probably the founder or certainly one of those pioneers of mixed martial arts as we knew it today, because he was just like, hang on, let's just rip up the rule book and let's just put this melting pot of ideas the same way that Mozart did. When even at an early age, I think it was Socrates who said, you know, the only thing I know is I know nothing. You know, so, so it's just always understanding yeah however old you are no you know that it's just still try and add things to your arsenal you can always learn things so i'm so glad you asked that yeah
2: what what about that i mean you know I, i'm a, i'm an old git in comparison to you but i still like to try and save it and stay fit. I'm not in the levels anywhere close to what you do but also i do i am a great believer is that you know every day you should try and learn something new or you should experience something new and, I, and that's why i'm very fortunate to do the job that, that i do and i think and i think you're like that but in terms of what you've done so far and what you've achieved isn't there a point when physically you will not be able to do those
3: things do you know what yeah and I'm almost glad you asked that because I think no, no one's really asked me that before because I think uh probably social media doesn't help but a lot of people will go oh you know wow you know you're always you're always you know smashing your training you know you can do this forever it almost creates this idea that you are you know, super humor or anything. It just couldn't be further from the truth. You know, that, that the laws of biology apply to all of us. So I absolutely, and I love speaking to, you know, people like yourself, friends of mine as well, who are fell runners. And they're getting better with age though as well. With that now, like I think, you know, uh, the the older athletes back in the day, that might have been like, okay, you know, now all of a sudden, uh, you know, testosterone growth hormone, like dipping your proportion of fast twitch muscle fibers, you know, even your tendons haven't got as much spring and elasticity granted. But now all of a sudden, you've got these older athletes who with nutritional strategies and everything else, they have capillary density, this mitochondrial efficiency, when they're running down um, and fell running, they understand geometry, so where to put their feet better than anyone but you only get that from years and years in the legs do you think do you think that cognitive thing is part of that as well a hundred percent and i and i don't know enough about this at the moment and i need to start looking into it, but this whole idea of anti-aging and that neuroplasticity
2: that's something obviously you don't have to worry about it too much right now ross but this ross does <laughs> he has to worry about it quite a lot and one thing i know one thing i'm seriously looking at now is longevity i mean you know I've sort of led a very full life. I've smashed myself physically, but also I've had my fair time, fair time of partying, and and that is all actually coming to a, a you know sort of a stop now because I can see literally the damage that it does to me. Um, do you see an end to it, or will you just carry on trying to find more challenges because that's what's in your DNA?
3: I I think it's in my DNA. However, I have thought about it. And already I love uh, ocean rowing. I love sailing. So right now I'm physically capable right now. But you know, I'm 34. So I'm, you know, from all of the studies and everything, I'm looking going, like, I'm I'm probably at my peak right now in that I'm young enough to be for my body to recover 12 hours a day, 157 days at sea swimming. Like, I don't think it's going to do that forever. But I'm also old enough to understand nutritional strategies, stroke technique, and you know all of these other things, strategies. I, I think a 21-year-old Ross, I don't know if he would have made it around Great Britain because he probably wasn't experienced enough, probably not mentally strong enough as well. Um, he might have been. He might have just have been like really naive and just gone and crushed it with youth. I don't know, but I absolutely think that that yeah, I, 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 I'm and I've said it on social media. I'm so keen to do you know another big swim or swims as long as my body allows it for a higher purpose. You know, I'd love to do something again for charity. But after that kind of, I know I can't. I've got to look myself in the mirror, be so honest, because I love what you said, Captain Webb. That people celebrate him swimming across the Channel. They don't know that he died trying to swim Niagara Falls, and 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 he and he didn't drown. They found his body, and it was crushed and contorted by the waves. You know, so so I'm, uh, you know, not in a weird way, but you know, like with like Mayweather, you know, boxing, and then like bowed out. Calzaghe did it at the right time. Lennox Lewis. You see all of these. And I think there's a, an element of knowing, you know, but when that happens, I'll go into sailing where you don't have to be, you know, physically, you know.
2: And, and also, because, you know, you were in the, in, the, in, in the, was it the British water polo team when you were younger?
3: Yeah, many moons ago now.
2: But so as a young man, you, were, you already had a lot of skills, right? And, and weren't you in an age group about five years above you in the, in the actual <laughs> national side? Yeah, it was. wasn't that, but yeah. wasn't that an indication at the time that you might be a little bit different?
3: Yeah, I, yeah, with retrospect, I think Ross, I think you're right. So, yeah, I was playing in the uh, England England schoolboys team, uh, under 18s when I think I was 13. So, and I was 13, I, yeah. So, I so you can imagine, right? So, I'm playing against guys who are the they've got side, beards, they've yeah, got beards, yeah, like the better side of puberty, basically. And I'm still, <laughs> I'm still waiting for like to, to grow a beard. So yeah, I was uh, going back to that idea of the 40% rule, central governor theory. I was always, I grew up fighting, just going like, like I'm not as big, you know, I'm not, you're, you're a full grown man. But one thing that I do have is I'm not going to give up tenacity and just kind of, and in water polo, you know, there is this element of um, physicality. Yeah, not, not having a fight. Like I've never been violent all, but you can just do something about it. If you're losing, you can grit your teeth and you can just like, you know get get through it so yeah I think looking back and then my older brother as well like we've we've always been sort of very similar in terms of height he's two years older than me but we're always treated as twins so I was always playing football and rugby and cross-country running with him and his friends even though I was two years younger because Scott never treated me any different so that was probably a, a huge factor as well that I was always refusing to acknowledge my limitations you're two years younger I was like no it's fine but you're really short I'm like no it's fine
2: (laughs) but that that, that's something that I think is and, and all the and all the podcasts we've done so far a lot of the people that I've spoken to do just that they refuse to give in they refuse to accept limitations and and is that can that be taught can that be learned or does that have to be inherent
3: I, I, what I love about that is I think it has to be earned. So learnt, but also earned. And, and, uh, it goes back to the, uh, the Royal Marines as well. I remember when I was down there and you, it's, it, I always find it fascinating to see some of the recruits going through their 32 weeks of training. And I was speaking to Benny, the, the PTI down there. And I said, Benny, can you look, and we saw this particular group of guys. I said, can you look and pick out uh, the guys that you know are going to make it? And he said, no. And I said, why? Cause that guy's crushing it. He's amazing. He's, he's a beast. And he said, yeah, but those genetically gifted guys don't know how to struggle. You know, and in my book, I talk about resilience being the strategic management of suffering.
2: Resilience being the strategic management of suffering.
3: Yeah, yeah, that somebody gets that. But the, so no gain without pain? Essentially. Yeah, essentially, but also probably a bit more like evolved from that. Is this idea that a lot of people, yeah, no pain, no gain, grip down, bite your teeth. But again, going back to that eight mile run that me and you were on, if one mile in you turn around to me and said, Ross, I've got a pebble in my shoe, I wouldn't go, no, Ross, it's resilient, keep the pebble in and grind it down and run. You'll be like, no, <laughs> take the pebble out. You know, or oh, it's really hot today. I'll be like, okay, before you set off, make sure that you've got energy gels, make sure you're hydrated. Okay, oh, we're going up, uh, we're going fell running. All of a sudden, I'm like, okay, what shoes are you wearing? No, we're
2: not. We're not. We're <laughs> so not going for a running. But go on. No, no, but I'm with you. So what you're saying is, yeah, that eudanasia, is it? Eudaimonia, Yeah, yeah. Eudaimonia. Yeah. sorry. You know how to get there. You strategically know how to suffer to achieve success. Mate, can I just say something? One of the things I just made me giggle, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't be giggling. I mean, the tongue was something, wasn't it? I remember watching, <laughs> watching documentary and... And going, mate, what are you doing to yourself? <laughs> and, and 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 just talk us through the soup.
3: Oh, are you, yeah. yeah, So uh, it was uh, on the boat. We were two weeks in. You know, my son, so salt tongue is essentially where the the salt water is extracting all the moisture from your tongue. It's essentially rotting. It, so it feels. It starts to begin. It feels furry. You're like ah, What's that on my tongue? Like and then all of a sudden, you start tearing strips off. But the worst bit, like you said, there was this time we were all in the galley as a team, and I'm. Uh, chowing down with this like really nice vegetable soup and uh, I turned to the captain Matt and I peer in his bowl and I'm wondering why I've got meat in mine. it was chicken or pork or something and I said Matt you know how come you've you've not got any chicken like what's that what's what's my he just looked at me and he was like meat. that's not chicken that's your tongue <laughs> so it was at that point strategic management of suffering we couldn't go just keep swimming until your tongue falls off no so if you're ever finding yourself in a similar situation coconut oil never but you're going, what cuz Because what that 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 kind of like what rehydrated your tongue? Is exactly it moisturized it and then also acts as a barrier as well. Like so every two hours I'd be swimming like that and they'd come over on the rib with a spoon of, of coconut oil and be like, there you go. And like a seal, I'd jump up, have it, and then they'd go, right, keep cracking on then." And and that nursed it, it just held it, you know, enough to make the whole swim um kind of like perpetual, like we could have kept going because as a team, we understood. It was like, okay, you've got a sea ulcer on your neck. Let's treat that before it gets any deeper or infected. Uh, Right, your tongue's falling off, bang, coconut oil. Uh, Hypothermia, okay, get him in the galley, warm him up. You know, it was this strategic management of suffering. Was there one point during that swim that stands out more than any other where you thought about giving up? yeah there was only there was only one um and i i'm i am glad you asked actually now because i i wasn't going to include it in the book because it was a story that not a lot of people knew from the great british swim because they watched the vlogs and everything but i never i never spoke about it but um my my dad it was it was in scotland um and he he'd known about it for a while but he didn't want me to think about it. He knew that I was left alone with my own thoughts and he, he kind of protected me from it. And he, um, he, he, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. It was, it's, um, stage four and stage he, four. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So, 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 I mean, the diagnosis was terminal. Um, uh, my, my dad's a beast. I mean, he's still, uh, like in lockdown, I rang him up. I was like, are you okay, dad? And everything He was like, yeah, he's, he's taught himself. Uh, he took an online uh, university course for the ancient Greek Olympics. You know, so he's just cracking on. He, the only thing he was annoyed about as well is, is um, he, he can't stand up now because some of the, the, the tumours have got so bad. So he's just like playing wheelchair tennis. He's just like, all right, no, because he's a tennis coach as well. Yeah, yeah I read that. Yeah. He's just a beast. He's like, all right, fine. I'll just uh, I'll start playing wheelchair tennis. So, so you got that news while you were actually on the swim? Yeah, I, I got that in Scotland, and um, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I just immediately t- t- talking about the idea of just um, like not thinking straight. Then just and just going like like I'm just I just want out. Like I just want to I just want to go back to land, and uh, I don't I don't care central governor theory all that. I was I, I just I'm not thinking straight. I'm not thinking. Uh, I'm emotionally charged now. Like I just I can't think straight. And and it was only because he was. So thinking so uh, clearly and stoically that he just turned to me and said, "But you, but you can't come back on land. I don't start my immunotherapy for another month. Even if you come back on land, there's nothing you can do." And that's that's when he said to me, he said, "Like you, you promise me that you can come back on land and you can be with the family and we will all be together. But you do it via Margate and you don't step foot on land until Margate." And so, uh, yeah, I said, "Okay, yep, fine." And then for for the for the entire uh, East Coast. A lot of people were like, "Wow, he's picked up some speed now," and that's just because, to, to, to your point, Ross, I was just, just like swimming, like just on adrenaline, angry, uh, sad, you know, and and uh, and then that was when Matt, the captain, who knew who knew what was going on, just said like, "You know, you, you can't do that. You can't swim the entire coast of the country like this. You you know that," and uh, and and then I had to just you know, take, take a, a step back and everything, but that, 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 was only because my dad was thinking straight because I wasn't, you know, and, and, and he knew how much it meant to me the swim. I said what I was, I said, I was going to do it. And he said, so you finish it. You told people you can do it. You finish it. And, uh, and, 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 and yeah, so it was weird that I, 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 it was, it was the biggest weakness but equally, because of my dad, it turned into one of the biggest strengths as well.
2: I mean, one of the things you talk about in, in your latest book is controlling. You can, can't you control the controllables, but you cannot control the uncontrollables, right? And you have to accept that.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah, something from uh, ancient Stoic philosophy was that idea of a more fety, which is just this idea of like a lover of fate. So it doesn't matter what cards you're dealt, learn to love it, learn to just accept it. And Seneca talks about um, this idea of uh, a a dog on a lead being pulled along by a cart. And that cart cart is fate. And you can either be a dog that runs along and is chasing the car, is having a great time, like looking at the birds and barking, or you can be dragged along reluctantly. But ultimately, that cart, fate, is still going to go. So do you want to be dragged along or do you want to run along playing? And, and, and that was one thing that it took a while for me to accept that, especially when um, we were delayed by two storms. And all I wanted to do was go home and hug my dad. But um, it, it's, it's one thing that I think a lot of people hopefully listening can take, uh, take something from that it's just any difficult situation that you find yourself in, sit down and pragmatically and honestly just say, right, what is in my control and what isn't? You know, and, and if you start segmenting your day, week, month, you know, lockdown at the moment was a great example. You know, when people are like, oh, God, I feel so helpless. I'm like, well, no, there's loads of things you can do in lockdown. But unless you can influence government legislation or you can come up with a, a vaccine, the, the, the coronavirus is, is a little bit of an uncontrollable for you. Make peace with that and more fatey. Seneca, be that dog.
2: So on that, on that, on the n- a number of, of challenges that you've already overcome in your life. Mm. Um, would you say the news about your father was the hardest thing you've ever had to overcome? Oh, a hundred
3: percent. I think by that point as well, even on the, um, the swim physically, I knew I could finish it physically. I was like, there's nothing stopping me from finishing this now. I know, I know I can swim for 30 miles a day. My shoulders feel fine. I'm treating wounds, but it was, it was that one thing that, um, yeah, it was, uh, it, w- it was something that I didn't see coming. No one did. And, um, and, and, and then you just, you, re, you really start to realize that, you know, one of those biggest handbrakes can just be in your own head for so many different reasons. Cause physically I knew I could continue, but it was, it was just something. Yeah. It was, it was something that I didn't see coming. Yeah. And, and, and
2: you're still coming to
3: terms with, with no doubt the diagnosis of your dad
2: and you're obviously, you, you love, you're very close and you're very loving.
3: Yeah. 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 Even now, but it's, it's, um, yeah he, he, and and trying to talk honestly and openly with with him about it he's he's so uh, philosophical about it i mean he and that, that that's one thing that i think even on the swim as bad as it got it was always knowing that you know that that what dad was going through was was so much worse and and, and even now he he's, he talks so like that's why i said it and i dedicate the book to him i say he's the the most stoically strong man that i know um and that was just because even even now he says Ross, you know, terminal four cancer, um, uh, 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 stage four cancer, melanoma. uh, He said 10 years ago, they would basically say, um, do you have any money in the bank? And you'd say, yeah, I've got some money and they'll go, cool, go and have a great holiday. You know, just, just have a blowout because you're not going to be around much longer, you know, but, but now because of immunotherapy, and this comes back to what I do with my fundraising for, with the teenage cancer trust, immunotherapy is amazing, but it's only become relatively widely accessible now for the last two three years you know so without that I'm I'm probably under no illusion that I I may not have if I finished the swim dad might not have even been there you know it it was that bad but immunotherapy is amazing and so that's why now as well I talk about doing something for a higher purpose it's 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 still inspired by my dad so yeah yeah
2: and and you talk about your brothers and your dad was dad was tennis coach and your mum was a sprinter grandparents marathon runners when marathon running probably wasn't the most popular sport out there. Um, do you think that that has also played a, a hand in, in who you are in terms of, in terms of their spirit, in terms of their outlook towards sport?
3: Yeah, I, you know what, I think it has just because like, if, if anyone comes around to our house for like a Sunday roast dinner, all we talk about is sport, you know, that that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it. and I grew up with stories of Captain Webb, Shackleton, Captain Bly and you know, all this. So, so for me, when I said, like, I think I'm going to swim around, you know, Great Britain, my family just go, it's fine. Yeah, it's great. You know, why, why wouldn't you? It's a great way to spend the summer. My brothers turned up in Port Patrick in Scotland uh, to cheer me up dressed as uh, Poseidon and uh, Popeye. <laughs> you know, so to know that you come from that sort of a family, it, um, it's, it's, you know, that I'm lucky because that's the team that I was almost handed. But then in terms of your friends, it's knowing that who you surround yourself with is so important. It will have such an impact on, on you, whether you know it or not. And I, I'm just so lucky that, yeah, I've, uh, I, I was uh, handed this, this team slash family.
2: When you're in the water just ploughing through, does your mind not go, what's looking at me? Is something scoping
3: me out now? Is something just about to take a big chunk out of me? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent you do. And your mind, again, like when you're left alone with your own thoughts, you know, you see something out in the corner of your eye, you're like, hang on, what's that there? And, you know, it does. But one thing I have found is is this like real appreciation for sea life in that they're so, so intelligent. And I think some of the experiences that I had on the GB swim as well, it was so nice knowing that um, if you are swimming with a purposeful stroke, like with sharks, for instance, if you're swimming and you're uh, like floundering around on the top of the surface and, you know, it, it will sound like a dinner bell to a shark, basically. They'll be like, hang on, something's panicking up there. They, all of it, If you've got this like, slow, methodical, purposeful, they'll kind of go, hang on, what's that? Oh, that's not dinner. Or you know, even like, doesn't look like it's got a lot of meat on it. It's not even worth it. Well, having said that, how many calories were you taking <laughs> in? <laughs> well, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, so 15,000 calories a day. 15,000?
2: <laughs> you were on 15,000 and you were burning it.
3: Yeah, well, burning it, but also putting on some much-needed weight. Because as we realized, we were going to be going it, into the winter. Body heat. body heat. Exactly that. Yeah, body heat and buoyancy as well. Knowing that it was going to go on longer, my body started to change completely. And, and actually became a really nice byproduct of the swim that I randomly – I tweeted one night, and I said uh, – there was a picture of myself. I'm, like, hairy. I've lost – when I started, I was tanned. It was the summer. I had a six-pack, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. That body was useless. Like by the time I got to Scotland, like I did not want abs. You know, I wanted a nice layer of you know, like just pudding around here. And, and I posted, I just, uh, this picture of my body, just looking, you know, like this. And I just said, um, you know, make your body an instrument, not an ornament. And it was just this idea of, uh, you know, form follows function. The demands that I'd placed on my body, and the sea had placed on my body, had turned it into this half human, half seal you know, sea blubber my, my legs because I'd skipped leg day for 157 days they they'd shriveled up. I had no calves, but my upper body was like, you know, like this. And I was like, that was the body um, that I was really quite proud of. And I was always so grateful to uh, Men's Health Australia because they put a picture um, when I was a day out from finishing on the cover. And I'm just like hairy. I've got sea ulcers. I've got a belly. And um, I was like, good, because that, that was the body that
2: that I need it and you write for all those magazines and you write articles and and you're you know you're so widely supported and, and 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 admired and rightly so do you think there is too much of it do do you think that that for the average person and i include myself in that that looking at a picture of men's health is just going to depress you because for people to get to that position they either have to cheat um they have to starve they have to take either steroids or they have to take uh, human hormones, whatever it may be. Do you think that there is too much pressure now? And, and I, I think there has always been on, on, on females, but also on males now. This body dysmorphia, all this oh,
1: stuff.
3: I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I 100% do. I, I did part of my dissertation on this where we started even looking at the uh figurines like um the looking at action man and how he's changed over the years it's crazy if you look at like 1980s 1990s action man you know and you looked at his proportions his biceps were like you know 12 inches if you made him life size you know his desk was you know whatever it was 30 you know six inches i believe you look at the 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 kid that the the figurines that the kids are playing with now and he's got like you know 30 inch biceps his chest is you know so it, you're 100% right. I think it's rife within the male sort of fitness industry, but not often spoken about on the same level as you know anorexia and, and bulimia, um, and even those also affecting males. That's you know bulimia and anorexia are often seen um, as things that plague the female fitness industry, but no. Like in my experience, um, and to speak so honestly about it as well with friends of mine who have done you know, physique competitions and, and modeling, um, they, they openly talk about it and they know something's wrong, but they will go and compete. And there's this idea of getting your body fat so low. So you're competing, competing, you look incredible, you're tanned, you know, the lighting as well for those pictures, so also an element of that. You know, the, they look amazing, but they look in the mirror at that day and they go, I'm never gonna look this good. This is it, this is the peak. So it's that idea of eudaimonia and going on a journey and being intrinsically versus extrinsically motivated. Now, if you're extrinsically motivated and you've got that picture of you looking amazing, well, where do you go from there? Like, that's, that's, that's it, is that, and, is there a, and is there a
2: limit to that? And, and should, we be, should we be scared and worried for the future that we are, we are setting unattainable goals for the human body in terms of its look?
3: Yeah, I think and I hope that we're seeing a slight transition in that, that you are seeing a lot of people now where bodies are celebrated. I never forget, it was Chris Froome uh, and he was, I think it was in Men's Health, and uh, some of the comments on social media really made me quite upset because they were, if you've looked at Chris Froomey's his arm, his, his bicep and tricep is non-existent, basically, because he doesn't need them. Like, he won not de different. Why do you need biceps? And has to hold on to some handlebars. And he probably got a better grip than most people. It's exactly it. It's exactly it. Whereas some people are like, oh, my God, look at his body. He looks like a skeleton. And I was just like, my God. Like, that, and that made me so upset because I was thinking, you want that guy to go and win the Tour de France, to kill himself off in what is a superhuman feat, but but you also want him to have what twenty-one inch biceps as well, and I think that was one thing that I found as well that I you know I, I got trolled a little bit on social media on the swim when they were like how to lose your games. and I
1: was like, "Mate,
2: are you kidding me?" <laughs> it's true. What do you think? Look, look, you're a younger man than me, and you, you know I, I I I use social media like anybody else does. This will be on social media, but. But do you not think that there is an element of cruelty to it that that is is mainly born out of the fact that it's slightly
3: anonymous, that you would
2: never say that to someone's
3: face? Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. But it's weird because social media, I found, can bring out the very best in people and the worst. When I started the swim, you only have to go back because it's all there. You look on episode one on YouTube and you can look at the comments and people going, he's never going to do it. Uh, He he looks like a dwarf bodybuilder. All of the comments. Uh, And I never mind, because I do not uh, oh, I
2: do. I think some of it hurts. I think some of it, if you read it all, it's gonna hurt you
3: at some point. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, but I, I, it hasn't because I've grown up with it now. You know, so I think what's, I just will kind of go, oh, and, and actually at the time, I remember thinking like, noted, noted. And what's hilarious is when you look back over those comments, some people were so outspoken big capital letters going this will never happen he will die trying or he's going to sink and someone's already gone back over those comments and gone well this is awkward (laughs) since finishing (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and so what was so nice i think i found and this is what i love about social media is um you can create a tribe of people who will get it you know and and actually you're able to just block people and everything but on the gb swim At the start, the negative comments, and they were there. Um, After a while, they just filtered out. There is something slightly
2: satisfactory, uh, satisfying, sorry, about watching that happen as well. And I I have been on the end of that, you know, the first one out to Afghan, what is Grant Mitchell from EastEnders doing, going out there, he shouldn't go. There was resentment from, not only from journalists, but also from, from, from squaddies themselves. And to watch that go, was was slightly satisfying and you talk about other things that would would motivate you will you turn that negativity into a motivation therefore you turn that into a a, a positive
3: right yeah and also I think it also comes from who you surround yourself with as well because I think when you're surrounded by just good people they keep you so to as well like so I this is weird but I never forget when I finished the whole swim and I pulled up in Margate and so many people were there and it was amazing and people going oh yeah well done you know this is incredible uh, you know people going oh he's such a hero one of the first voices I heard was my two brothers go look how small his Willie is it must have been freezing in there <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> oh, thank you Why? so much family <laughs> thank, thank you, you. <laughs> so it's just it's just this idea of like keeping you so grounded you know and and I think when you've got that um you know and, and you're able to self-deprecate look at yourself don't take yourself too seriously and also I knew that um after uh the uh, Caribbean swim where I swam over 100 kilometers with the tree I didn't make it to Martinique. I didn't actually make this you know so I was try- it was only 40 kilometers but I swam 100 and didn't make it but, but at the end, you know, I untied the tree and my family were there and we like, well, that was weird, wasn't it? And we all just went, you know, and got dinner. So I think if you, if you truly have those people around you and you yourself are bulletproof, then it, it doesn't matter. And then I know what you're saying and I hope people listening never, this will be actually a really nice takeaway. I hope people listening never, ever, ever let... People on social media stop you from what you're doing. Because if people had stopped you from doing it, we'd never have extreme world. would have never had that entire series that influenced and changed people's perceptions about what was going on in the world. If you had let people say, oh, what's him doing from EastEnders? Do it. And it's the same with me. I'd never have swum around Great Britain. So then I'm going to be sitting there in my house going, oh God, I wonder if I could have ever done it. I'd be 80 years old thinking, could I have swum around Great Britain? I'll never know.
2: Do you ever have the black dog? Do you ever get depressed? You're a very
3: positive person, but do you ever have the black dog? No, do you know what? I don't. And this is what's weird because I think a lot of people sometimes have said to me, um, you know, but but to do the GB swim, you must be running from something. There must be something you're harboring these, you know, dark feelings, emotions, something to try and prove yourself. But so often it's just understanding that one, it's intrinsically motivated. I love doing it. But also as well, like more than that, I think it's uh, related to your ikigai. So a Japanese term that they, uh, they coined on this island where they have more people living over 100 than anywhere else in the world, that um, you know, your reason for being, your sense of purpose, the reason you get up in the morning needs to be your ikigai. So that is made up of four things that they claim. So this is um, what you enjoy doing, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for. It's those four things. And so often people will miss out on something there, you know, that you need all four. And for me, when people are like, why would you swim around Great Britain? I'm like, because I get to see the coastline. I get to see my country in a way that no one ever else has, you know, at a speed that no one else has, at a level of detail that no one else has. So I enjoy doing it. I'm quite good at it. You know, I can float quite far. You know, you've got these final two as well. Um, could you be paid for it? Well, retrospectively, you know, fortunately, the book's done quite well. So, yeah, I suppose in an indirect way, I can be paid for it. Is it what the world needs? You know, and quite often, if that's for charity, if it's, um, you know, trying to inspire people to push beyond their own boundaries, then yeah, it's what the world needs. So when people say to me, like, you know, you must be harboring, you know, these depressive thoughts and something to drive you, I'm like, no, it's my ikigai. And actually, you know, when I can't swim anymore, people are like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'll be like find something else that's make a guy like like sailing
2: so you've also spent time in ecuador i did you, you, you did too right yeah yeah mate i a very <laughs> different experience whatever well, tell me what tell me about your experience i'll give you a little bit of mine go on
3: i, I very quickly so i lived with um, the the Chagra, who are mountain cowboys in in cotopaxi so avenue of the volcanoes um, and we were basically up there uh, herding bulls branding them doing corral work and Uh, lived there for a month, did the whole, and this is what I love actually, I did the whole thing, the Shagra up there, uh, nailing basically a Puntos, which is like 60% alcohol or something crazy, you know, like that. And uh, I did the whole thing like drunk, basically, just like lassoing balls and, and, you know, and it was amazing to see these people, Uh, one guy as well, particularly, he was like the most You couldn't draw a better picture of a a Chagra, an Ecuadorian He had a black hat, black poncho, like that cape and his big horse. And I said, you know, who's that? And they were like, oh, that's Manuel. And I was like, what's what's his story? And they were like, oh, like he's one of the most feared and revered, you know, Shagra over all of Cotopaxi. And I said, oh my God, that's amazing. His, His skin was like leather. I said, how old is he? And they turned and they translated and they went, Manuel. They were like, Manuel, he wants to know how old you are. Manuel just looked at me and just went, I don't know i like, what do you mean you don't know? And he was like, I don't know how old I am. Like, I guess I stopped counting past my 70th birthday. I guess maybe, maybe I'm 80 or 90, somewhere around there. And it was just this idea that I loved as well, that no one was going to Manuel. Oh, you're old now. You need to come to a retirement home. You need to start taking it easy. No, he was there pinning balls down, branding them. Just like he was in a mo- Not only that, they were sending for him when like, there was a, a particularly troublesome ball. They were like, go and get Manuel. So not only are they not shielding, and they're sending him up in against this raging bull, and I love that. That ever since that, that had such a profound impact on me that I'm like, I want to be Manuel when I'm older. I still want to be lassoing bulls when I'm 80 or 90, or however old he is, he doesn't know. But it was it was amazing. Did you did you find something similar with the Ecuadorian culture? I, I just I, I love them.
2: I mean, I, I love that part of the world anyway. I know I spent most of my time in the Am- Amazonian rainforest. We were looking at the effect of, of sadly of, of the oil industry on on indigenous tribes, the Wirani, I do have, though, my, um, my present that I got from them. Um, <laughs> I, um, I had a helicopter uh, kind of like uh, crash landing the day before, so we ended up getting in what was only described, only described as a Volkswagen Beetle with wings. <laughs> um, and um, honestly, we got inside this aircraft. Um, my friend had made it by boat. Tom Watson had made it by boat to the tribes, and he'd been out that night. They'd been hunting for anacondas like you do, Oh no. uh, <laughs> snakes with heads the size of very large um, uh, Alsatian dogs. But this is your proverbial dart, right? Can you see it? Can you yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's a, basically it's a very thin piece of bamboo. And then it comes with this um, kind of wooden ball. And inside the wooden ball is a natural cotton wool that comes off the side of it's like a, ru- a rush um, that you get down on, on the water side. And you, you wrap that around the tail end of the blowpipe sorry, the pit, the, 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 the needle. And then it goes in this little baby here, right? And this is, this is your, your short, uh, for those in the military, i.e. this is a very short version of an actual real bow pipe. But I got back home um, after my trip and I managed to get this in the Volkswagen with wings as well. Uh, and we had four attempts at taking off. And literally, as we went past, some of the Murani had been converted to Christianity and they were doing this, they were crossing themselves as we made our third attempt to take off. Um, literally, I had the cameraman on my lap. I had the tripod <laughs> of the camera that was stuck in the back of the head of the uh, pilot. And he was crossing himself as he was anchoring the plane to try and get it off the ground. Um, but um, the point being that I got <laughs> home with all this kit, right? I should never have, if I had it on me, I'd probably taken it off the first time. <laughs> anyway, we must be, so I load up my my, my dart. Luckily I haven't got the toad poison, but And I put it on the end of it and I had some some guardia from Bali at the other end of my kitchen and it was a kind of very long thin house. It's (laughs) about 30 foot, right? I'm going, this is never going to work. (laughs) So I aimed it at the guardian, which is probably a very bad thing to do anyway. I blew the start, right? I go, did anyone, anyone see where it went? We looked up to the guardia and this little dart <laughs> of bamboo had buried itself 50% into the head of the Guardia.
3: <laughs> I'll tell you what. It's like, you know you when you go, you
2: go, Oh, oh! I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so, uh, I've just told you.
3: There you go. They
2: bow lapping <laughs> to me now. Me. Anyway, <laughs> let me put my darts back in. And the great thing about them is as well, you put your hand in there by mistake, you will know, get a, a sharp little oh, finger. Yeah. When, you, when you swam out
3: uh, in the West Indies with the, with the log, what was, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah so that was all stemmed from we did a a triathlon carrying a hundred pound tree and it was for the island of (sighs) Nevis yeah (laughs) it wanted to become the uh, the first carbon neutral island by 2030 I believe was their ambition and so they just said like Ross we've got a triathlon can you come out here and do something to you know raise awareness around all the initiatives that we have I was like that is that's a higher purpose that is a noble cause so you know, tied the trunk, uh, the, the tree to my trunks, and then, and then off I went, and, and I think this tree became a little bit symbolic, of a lot of the work that I was doing with wildlife charities at, at Chester Zoo to combat deforestation, and so that's when somebody said, um, you know, why don't you, well, initially, actually, I tell a lie, initially, they said, why don't you swim across the English channel, but carry in a tree, and I was like, that's brilliant, so I rung up uh, Dover Port Authority, and um, I rang them up and I was like, hello, uh, Ross Edgley here. I'm sorry, a bit weird, bit weird, uh, but I want to swim across the English channel. And they said, absolutely fine. No problem. We'll send you some forms and we'll introduce you to some people, you know, the, the channel swimming association and, and they'll sort it all out for you. I went, brilliant, brilliant. Sorry, just quickly before I go, um, uh, if possible, I'm, I'm looking to do it with a, with a tree attached to my trunks. And then all of a sudden, and Ross, I wish I'd recorded this, that the phone went completely silent and I went, hello, are you, are you still there? And they went, um well you, you you can't swim across the english channel with a tree attached to your trunks and i said but but, but why not and they went well be- because you're not a registered vessel <laughs>
2: so
3: i went then how do i become a registered vessel and then they hung up, they hung up the phone because this is why we decided to do it in the caribbean where rules are a little bit more relaxed
2: um okay you you'd be very very honest and and what a fantastic human being you are
3: so what's what's next at the moment uh i've basically just given the brief to uh you know crew members of my friends in the ocean rowing community i just said i just want to do something for a higher purpose i think with everything that's happening right now you know covid uh you know ha- happening in america and everything i'm just like if there is if there is a swim that can help so uh, lynn cox amazing swimmer she famously swam um, between two small islands, uh, uh, between Alaska and Russia. And she did it to ease political Straits. The Bering yes, strait Yeah, exactly there, yeah. Yeah, so it was two miles between two small islands there. And it was a swim that was amazing, and, and it really helped ease political tensions at the time. And I, I just, I think with everything that's happening right now, I've just sort of said, if a swim could help in any way, because I'm not, I'm not Elon Musk, I'm not going to create a gigafactory or anything, I'm not uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, I can't speak to the UN. You know, but, but one thing I know that I'm good at is I can float very far. So I've turned around to people and said, so if that can help in any way, then let me know and I'll put my goggles on. So that's the brief um, and, and people are throwing around ideas. But, you know, if, if, if one finally gets green lit, I'll, you know, honestly, you'll be the first to know and I'll be like, oh, look, man, right. Trust me, I'll, I'll be there
2: at the, I'll be at the finish line.
3: <laughs> <laughs> An ice cold
2: beer, eudaimonia. I probably, I'll probably <laughs> would have drunk it by the time you hit four. <laughs> Ross, oh. mate, inspiring. Oh. As you say, you are you are those things. You are the intelligent warrior, aren't you?
3: Oh, I, I try to be. I try to be. Mate,
2: absolute pleasure
3: speaking to you. An honour. Oh, Ross, thank you so much, mate. Like I said, I think I've done quite well not fanboying you too much. Hey, mate. <laughs> it's a, it's a, mutual, <laughs> a mutual love going on, mate. Oh, Ross, thank you ever so much, mate. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kemp Cast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and a Chance of Collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye.